0: Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, mandate mystery.
1: It's clear that the COVID situation is not the same now as it was last fall when we implemented the vaccine mandate for travelers.
0: Why did the federal government finally drop those travel mandates? Was it medical science or political science? And will more travelers mean even more delays at airports? The Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra joins us. Then, Inflation Nation. A new set of measures is coming into force right now to help the Canadians who need it
2: most. The reality is there is nothing new in her speech that's actually going to help people in a real way today.
0: New inflation problems, but why no new inflation solutions from the government? What more could be done to lower costs? we'll go one-on-one with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Then, conservative
3: crossfire. If they are so focused on uh, attacking myself, it begs the
0: question, why? New allegations from Pierre Poliev that Patrick Brown is cheating to win the leadership race. How does Brown respond as the race gets even nastier? The leadership candidate himself, Patrick Brown, joins us. All that plus, should the public safety minister, Marco Mendicino, resign over the Emergencies Act? The Scrum will dig into that. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Travel mandates may be ending tomorrow, but are travel delays. With Canada's largest airport, Pearson International, still experiencing ongoing flight delays and long lineups and people spending days trying to get their passports to travel, the federal government has been under intense pressure to finally drop those travel mandates and do something to fix the system. After all, provinces dropped their mandates weeks ago, and there has been very little scientific evidence available to show that the mandates are still needed. That's why starting tomorrow, finally, unvaccinated travellers will be able to board a plane or a train within Canada. But foreign nationals will still need to be vaccinated to come into the country. Masks still remain mandatory on board all flights and trains. Vaccination also now not required for federally regulated transport workers and federal public service employees. Those folks can come back to work if they were on administrative unpaid leave. But the government says mandates could return if the pandemic situation changes. So was the decision to finally end mandates based on political science or medical science? And what is the government doing to make travel less of a nightmare now that the summer season is here? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Transport Minister, Omar Al-Garba. Always a pleasure, sir. Uh, The federal government has repeatedly said science would inform the pandemic-related decisions. Can you tell us today... What exactly was the scientific threshold your government used to finally lift the mandates tomorrow and not, say, a month ago?
1: Uh, Evan, first of all, uh, happy Father's Day to you and your viewers, uh, and thank you for having me on your show. Uh, Exactly as you stated, we have been consulting science uh, and experts on our measures and we've committed to Canadians that we will always err on the side of public safety and do everything we can to protect their health and safety. And it is true that the virus has evolved and the science associated with it has changed. And now that two-dose vaccine is less uh, sufficient to reduce transmission. And based on that information, we we felt comfortable that we can now suspend these mandates for travelers, but we also wanted to remind Canadians that we need to remain prudent, and if things change in the fall, we may have to again adjust okay, our but, measures. But I hope they don't get worse, but if they do, we want to make sure that we're ready to protect Canadians. Well, what's
0: the threshold? Again, you know, your government has long said you follow evidence-based policymaking. What was the evidence? Just give us the numbers where you all gathered around and say, okay, this is the date we can finally lift the mandates. Because you and I both know that um, for months we've known that uh, the two-dose vaccine um, is not seen as effective um, right now. So what was the evidence? Can you just be transparent? Like, was it hospitalization rates? What was it?
1: Oh, I'll tell you, Evan, it's a combination of things. First, it's research and studies, and we wouldn't have acted based on the first research that had come out. We needed to see ample evidence. We needed to see several studies, and we looked at multiple studies in, uh, a, about the effectiveness of vaccine to those shots. Second. Indeed, we looked at hospitalization and ICU rates. We looked at infection rates. We looked at risk factors and the fact that we're in the summer where a lot of the gatherings happened outdoors. So there's been a variety of factors that we considered. We are being measured, we are being responsible, and we are doing our due diligence because we want to protect the health and safety of Canadians. Okay,
0: but so, so the gov- you've said, and you just told us, that the mandates could come back if the situation evolves. We don't know we can't really get a figure out on when your government decides at some point to lift mandates, what's the threshold to put them back on? Is there a number that we should know or is that also a kind of, again, some mystery that you put together, some algorithm that we don't know?
1: So, so, uh, Evan, I understand why you and many Canadians want to know a solid number, but I'll explain to you why that is somewhat difficult to do. For example, if, God forbid, we have a variant that has a high infection rate but low hospitalization rate, uh, then even if the hospitalization rate is high, we may not have to impose severe measures. But if we have a variant that has low transmission rate but high severity rate, even if the hospitalization rate is low at the beginning, we need to be prepared for a high severity. And so there are some variables, and I understand that it's uncertain but we have to be responsible and I can't make a commitment on a specific number if I know there's uncertainty but my commitment and our government's commitment is that we will do whatever it takes to protect the health and safety of Canadians. Okay,
0: meantime you're getting crushed about the delays. Millions of people are experiencing delays. Uh, Pearson International Airport is is experiencing a lot of delays. I know there's delays all over the world but Canadians are, are, are trying to figure out what you can do here. Is it fair to say, Minister, that the government miscalculated the amount of travel there would be, that after two years there were, you underestimated it, there weren't enough cats, that you weren't prepared for the influx, and, and we're paying for it now. Is it fair to say there, that you miscalculated the demand and, and, and that underestimation is what we're paying for now?
1: Uh, look, Evan, I think it's re- reasonably, reasonable to say that the surge was unprecedented that the surge that we're seeing today uh and i'll tell you economists a few months ago were predicting that air travel won't be back to 2019 levels until 2025. what we're seeing today based on these patterns is that they might come back to where they were by the end of this year or early next year so there's for sure an unprecedented surge in travel that we're seeing around the world Having said that, we're acting, Evan. We need to be very quick and agile in responding to the surge. And I think it's good news for our tourism industry, it's good news for travelers, but we need to make sure that we're providing the resources needed.
0: uh, Okay, but nobody traveling who's gone through Pearson says good news, like it's been a nightmare. People are waiting hours, their flights are getting canceled. Um, are, is your government? We have a passenger bill of rights. Is your government enforcing the passenger bill of rights? So uh, passengers are getting compensated when their flights are canceled or there's overbooked, or is that happening?
1: Absolutely, we brought the Passenger Bill of Rights to ensure that uh, uh, airlines are held accountable to a high level of standard. The Canadian Transportation Agency is the body responsible for adjudicating complaints, for holding the airlines accountable. Having said all of that, we are working together. I want to thank everyone who works in the industry today. I know everybody is working hard to respond to the surge. Uh, But, of course, we have expectation that our airlines um, are responsive to travelers, are held accountable, and we're making sure that we provide all the support needed. And, Evan, let me just assure you, last week the numbers were 50% better than the week before, and that week before were better than the week before that. Having said that, there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of work. We need to remain focused, and we need to ensure that we're doing everything we can.
0: Is there a date... That you can assure Canadians watching that at airports like Pearson uh, you it will get back to normal it will get back to no delays like we've experienced at what point does it return to the best practice
1: so Evan as a person who lives in Mississauga where Pearson Airport is I can tell you that almost every summer there are always occasions where Pearson is busier than normal having said all of that we're working diligently to ensure to address all of the issues right now that are causing these bottlenecks, whether they are resources, whether they are public health uh, 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 processes, whether they are CBSA, and we want to see this addressed as quickly as possible. We're working with the airport to make sure that they have the resources needed. We're working with the airlines, so I can tell you I am focused and committed to doing everything the government can to, to, uh, to address this.
0: Okay, i got to leave it there. Transport Minister Omar al thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Evan. All right, when we come back, inflationary pressure. Should the federal government do more to give immediate financial relief to Canadians hit hard by inflation? And could the government's plans impact its deal with the NDP, who are saying do more? We'll find out next when we're joined by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Stay right here with Question Period. No one needs to be reminded about inflation. You feel it at the pump when you pay over two bucks a liter at some places. Canadians are eating less food because grocery bills are skyrocketing. There was a survey last week that warned that close to one of four Canadians would have to sell their homes if interest rates keep rising. So facing these new warnings, The finance minister announced something she billed as a new affordability plan. But fact check, there was literally nothing new in the plan. Not one new dollar, not one new tax break. Everything she announced was already in the last two budgets, including the boost to Canada's worker benefit, increasing old age security by 10%, providing a one-time housing affordability, payment of 500 bucks for low-income Canadians. We've seen it all before. I'm not going to claim that these measures are going to cover every single person but i will say they do a pretty good job of covering the most vulnerable who
1: need the support the most
0: so is more needed now or is there enough firepower in that last april budget because the money flowing will actually be new to some canadians to help people deal with inflation let's find out joining me now is the ndp leader jagmeet singh Of course, he has that confidence and supply deal with the Liberals to support them. Uh, Mr. Singh, great to have you back on the program. You expressed disappointment in the Liberals' repackaged affordability plan. They say it's substantial, we were ready for it. In your view, what was missing?
2: Well, there's nothing new to respond to the urgent crisis that's going on right now. So when we talked about, when you mentioned the cost of gas that's over $2 a liter, the grocery bills that are higher, the interest rates that are going up, These are things that are happening now in a a much more intense way than when we had talked about some of the measures that we put forward. So dental care and the housing benefit, things that we fought for, we achieved and we used our power to get into the deal. But what we need now is something more than that. And effectively in this deal or in this announcement that the finance minister announced, for a lot of people, all they're going to see concretely in their pocket is about seven dollars if you look at the GST tax credit uh, right. index. I, mean,
0: I, I know you said that just to $7. be to, just, I just, I don't want you to be disingenuous. I, I know that you've said that. The $7 is the GST credit payment that goes up seven bucks. But technically, even though this was announced uh, in April, there's, there, look, the new money in the budget, for the first time, you're gonna get 500 bucks for seniors. They're boosting workers' benefit. The, the Some of these supports are indexed to inflation. A lot of new money is going out, even though we knew it was coming, there's $8.9 billion is going to be flowing for the first time from the budget. You know that.
2: It doesn't change the fact that for a lot of people, the only concrete increase that they're going to see if they don't qualify for the others is the $7. That is a fact.
0: But the most, but they, people, but the, Liberal, the liberals are saying the see. most vulnerable do qualify. That's what they're targeting it, to the most vulnerable. That's what they say.
2: The, the GSC tax credit goes to the most vulnerable, and that increase is going to be $7. I'm I'm very serious about this point. That is not going to mean anything for someone who is trying to get groceries, who's trying to pay the bills, who's worried about losing their home. That is what some people are going to see. That's a fact. That does not meet the urgency of what people are going through right now. What we've called for is to increase that by 500 to $1,000. Uh, we want to put that money into people's pockets using a doubling of the GST tax credit, not just a $7 increase, and increasing the Canadian child benefit. And economists have agreed that our plan is about redistributing the windfall that the government and large corporations have enjoyed. So it's not about injecting new money, but it's redistributing money, which will not increase inflation and will concretely help people who are faced with higher prices.
0: So look, back in March, the NDP, and you made this deal to support the Trudeau government, the confidence and supply issue. If you really genuinely believe they're failing Canadians who are struggling with inflation, Uh, and you don't like their affordability plan, you don't have a lot of leverage now to move the needle. Why continue to support this government?
2: Well, the two major pieces that the Liberals pointed to in their plan are things that we made happen. Dental care, that's going to happen this year for kids under 12. They're going to be able to get their teeth looked after. That's going to save families thousands of dollars. That's going to happen this year because of us. The $500 housing benefit top-up, that was announced in the, in the speech was strictly because of us. That was not going to happen but for the agreement. So we've actually pushed the needle significantly in a lot of ways.
0: I want to talk about the Emergencies Act, which you supported and your party supported. The Conservatives claim that the Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendicino, misled Parliament. He has repeatedly said back in February, uh, March and May that he and his government acted on the advice of police. And there's countless clips of him saying that, but the RCMP The Ottawa police say, no, we never asked for it. His own uh, colleague, Minister Bill Blair, at committee, questioned by one of your own members, by the way, said, you know, uh, I didn't expect the police ever to ask. In your view, did Marco Mendicino mislead Parliament, and if so, should he resign?
2: In in terms of accountability, we always want to see ministers held to account. So the idea around making sure that the minister is being transparent, providing us with uh, evidence and information and good testimony when he's appearing in front of a committee, is important. Uh, the 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 main point though I want to come back to the Emergencies act we supported it. We absolutely saw the harm that was being caused by people that were a part of an agenda to overthrow democracy who were supporting extreme right-wing ideologies. These folks uh, had weapons at coots. Uh, we're shutting down borders, we're hurting workers, we're hurting jobs, we're hurting families, we're hurting residents of Ottawa. So we absolutely believe that, that we need to take some serious steps to stop uh this convoy that was hurting canadians hurting residents hurting people uh the minister now has to be accountable absolutely but we've don't always you said you you
0: have to be accountable like i cuz you the question for, should be for you as well what's the threshold for any government to use a a, a piece of legislation like the emergencies act uh, for the first time. What's the threshold? If you believe the minister misled you, that they didn't reach the threshold, police didn't give them the advice, were you misled? Were, was the NDP misled? And that led you to support the use of the Emergencies Act, suggesting that that was what was required?
2: At the time, we know that once it was invoked, the crisis was was dealt with. Uh, as soon as it was invoked, the, the, the occupation of Ottawa was ended. The, the ongoing threats to border closures was ended and we were able to provide uh, security for Canadians. That, to me, is a sign that it worked. But okay, but you don't feel misled.
0: Weren't... You don't feel that the Liberals said, oh, we were listening to police, we got advice, and the police said, well, we didn't ask for it. We, in other words, they may not have needed it. You, you wanted it. So you don't feel like he misled, and you don't feel that you were misled.
2: Uh, Our understanding was that the advice that we had received, that we were given when we were briefed, was that tow truck companies weren't uh, willing to tow trucks away. They needed increased powers to make them uh, force them to tow trucks away. They needed increased power to go after the money because the money was flowing in in a significant way. We're talking millions of dollars to fund the occupation. So there was tools needed, and we were advised that these additional tools were needed. Uh, but that's the whole point of the review. We'll look at the, uh, the review and see with the public inquiry that's going to follow, with the questions to, to ministers, was there another way? Were there other tools available? But in terms of the shutting down the convoy, there's no question in my mind it was right to do whatever we needed to shut those folks down. Uh, they were a harm to people. They were harming people.
0: All right. I, I do have to leave it there for now. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, always good to have you on the program, sir. Thank you.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. Still to come cheating allegations the conservative party says it's going to investigate allegations from pierre poly that patrick brown is cheating to boost his membership numbers is it just dirty politics or is there something there well the leadership candidate patrick brown joins us next to respond stay right here with question period Conservative crossfire, and it is getting nastier. Now there's a new allegation of cheating. In a letter sent to the Conservative Party, the Pierre polievre camp alleges that, quote, organizers working for the Patrick Brown campaign were arranging to reimburse the membership fees paid by individuals who agreed to join the party using the Brown's campaign web portal. They go on to say this, quote, surreptitious reimbursement membership fees is contrary to the party's membership bylaw which requires that membership fees be paid by the applicant. And the Polyev team goes on to say they have proof, a recorded conversation, which they allege shows that these arrangements were discussed. Uh, they also believe this is all widely practiced by Brown in order for Brown to drive up membership sales. Brown has 150000 uh, He says, Polyev says, he's got 311000 The party's investigating the situation, and the Brown camp says, yeah, we'll cooperate, but they dismiss it all as a despot smear by the Polyev camp. Is there any substance to it? Is it just dirty politics? We have invited Mr. Polyev to come on this show this week and on numerous other occasions. He has never been available to us, but joining us to discuss the contentious leadership race is the leadership candidate and Brampton Mayor, Patrick Brown. Mr. Brown, thank you for being here. Um, You've denied these allegations, but the Polyev camp claims they have an audio recording and messages to support their accusation. So just on the table, has anyone in your campaign ever offered to reimburse someone for their purchase of a membership?
3: Absolutely not. And listen, this is Pierre of trying to change the channel. This week, there was a big story in world news, and it was that cryptocurrency was crashing. And Pierre of signature economic policy was recommending Bitcoin to Canadians. And if you took his advice, it would have lost half its value. Your investment would have lost half its value. You saw what happened with the El Salvador government when they depended on uh, cryptocurrency, and it was devastating for their finances. Pierre Polyev does not want to answer questions about how he has brought out economic policy that is embarrassing for the Conservative Party. So instead of answering questions and being willing to go on your show, which he's hiding from, he's decided to attack other Conservatives on claims that have no substance.
0: So, so is the, the audio recording, I assume your camp has heard it, is it authentic? Does it show that someone uh, allegedly offered to reimburse?
3: Yeah, it, first of all, we never heard of the individuals on the uh, audio recording. No connection to our campaign. And it's just, uh, you know, it, it is a distraction. And so, Pierre Polyev wants us to be talking about this. He is an expert when it comes to um, communications and, uh, and these type of distraction tactics.
0: Let me just two more on this membership thing, because, you know, they cite your own book that you wrote, uh, and they quote your book, Take Down, where they say that you wrote, quote, of buying buying up memberships for their supporters. Everyone knows it. Every party does it. No one really clamps down on it. It's sort of like jaywalking. You have, in the past, been accused of inflating membership numbers when you left, led the Ontario PC party, and you said it was 200,000, and your successor said it was actually 130,000. They're saying that this is your past and that's why you can't be trusted now. I just want you to answer that.
3: So these stories come out in every leadership campaign and, and Evan, you know that it comes to every leadership campaign about allegations of membership purchases. We've seen that over the last uh, 20 years. And I'm very glad that the conservative party put into place practices that uh, prevent that. They don't allow prepaid credit cards that so we have a very strict rule and a strict uh, uh, right. process. And, uh, um, certainly my campaign uh, abided by uh, all the rules.
0: Okay. Uh, they've also, just in case you thought that was the only uh, attack, the Commissioner of El- Canada Elections has been asked by the backer of Mr. Polly to investigate a report that you're using city staff in Brampton, where you're the mayor, to work full-time in your leadership bid. Is that true?
3: So, of course not. We have a, a, a strict uh, policy in the city of Brampton. that if you want to be involved in any political campaign, whether that is provincial, federal, for any political party, you can do so in your evenings, on your weekends. If you want to do so during the day, you have to take unpaid leave from work, and that is a policy that is enforced in, in, in the city of Brampton. I would note that this is, once again, the Pierre Pauliev campaign working with his friends at Rebel Media to uh, push an attack. And I have to say to the Pauliev campaign, um, this doesn't leave the impression of a confident front runner. You know, if they are so focused on uh, attacking myself, it begs the question why. You know, they, they, if they if their membership numbers were accurate, you know, they they wouldn't have to resort to these techniques. It, it's actually bewildering.
0: Okay, but but the concern is that you're losing support and momentum. Two weeks ago, two MPs who previously supported you switched to the Polyev camp. Michelle Rempel Garner stepped down as your campaign co-chair to explore a possible leadership bid to replace jason kenney in alberta um does that show that in fact the brown camp might be you're losing momentum not polyev
3: if we were losing momentum he wouldn't be spending this much time to uh, attacking our campaign he spends more time attacking my campaign than he does Justin just but, does, Trudeau. It hurt, but and, does it
0: hurt you that the mps are, are, are leaving you for him
3: so first of all in terms of the case of uh, michelle rempel um you know, she is being courted to run for the Alberta Conservative leadership. She still supports my campaign. She's she's a friend. And I think it speaks to the caliber of supporters I have. I would say the tactics that uh, the poly of camp is taking with MPs that aren't supporting them is a scorched earth approach. Uh, certainly, um, we've seen that in terms of the treatment of Ed Fast, who got removed as finance critic. Uh, um, and at the end of the day, I don't think if, for you know, Somehow Pierre Pauly was successful in this race. When you take those scorched earth uh, uh, approaches to a leadership campaign, how are you ever gonna bring the party together?
0: Have you ruled out a run in city politics? You have until August 19th to declare yourself a candidate in the Brampton mayoral race. Can you tell us right now, are you going to register for that? uh, Have you made a final decision on that?
3: Well, first of all, I just said I'm committed to running uh, federally and leaving municipal politics if. Uh, Jean Chretien was successful. Leslin Lewis was successful. Roman Baber was successful. Scott Henson was successful. Um, I just believe Pierre would be an electoral disaster, and if he was successful, I, I'd have to um, think about returning to um, public service. But, but that's or, or, not or until September.
0: Desk. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure it out. But you don't know till September 10th about the the leadership race uh, for the Conservative Party. You got are you going to register? Before August I no, 19th, will you declare yourself yeah, a candidate? Well, so I have no
3: candidate? plans to to register. I still feel very confident that uh, I can win this race and uh, and put the Conservative Party in a position to mm-hmm. um, defeat the Liberals, the NDP in the next election.
0: Okay, so I just want to just, well, last thing on that. You are here and committed to stay in the leadership race until the convention on September 10th.
3: I'm I'm here to, committed to stay in the leadership race and defeat Kiripolyev and build a winning Conservative coalition.
0: What do you say to the many members of the party now, sitting MPs who have endorsed Mr. Polyevre, the, the lion share of the party, um, that they're, they're backing him? How, do you, how would you, if you were a leader, uh, work with those members of parliament who clearly are giving him the early lead, not you?
3: well you know we saw that happen um in previous leaderships where actually i think in the last several leaderships the candidate with the most caucus endorsements didn't win the leadership but my approach would be this um no matter which candidate you support um it, it doesn't matter I, i'm gonna work with everyone uh, and uh, i certainly it wouldn't hold any grudges i think there's a lot of talent in caucus members who are supporting other candidates and uh, um, i would want to make sure the party can use their talent and uh, Focus on defeating the Liberals.
0: Okay, but so if you won, you could work with Pierre Polyeva. Would you put him in your cabinet?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to have a variety of voices. I would certainly um, encourage Pierre Polyev to continue to be involved in the party. I think he could be a formidable minister. He's certainly been a good attack dog. Um, and uh, I think you can have a variety of views in a, in a cabinet.
0: All right, got to leave it there. Uh, Patrick Brown, great to have you back on the program.
3: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: Okay, coming up, calls to resign. Did the Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino really mislead Canadians over the use of the Emergencies Act, or was it just a misunderstanding? This is a critical question. The Conservative emergency preparedness critic Dane Lloyd will join us as a special guest on the scrum. Stay right here with question period.
4: said law enforcement asked for the Emergencies Act, also false. So does the Prime Minister agree that Canadians deserve better than a minister who repeatedly and overtly misleads them?
0: Lying, misleading, misinforming. Those are just some of the words that many Conservative MPs are using in their calls for the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, to resign. Here's why. In order to justify the controversial use of the Emergencies Act by the government to shut down the trucker convoy protest back in February, the minister repeatedly told Parliament that he acted on the advice of police. Check this out.
5: We invoked the Emergencies Act after we received advice from law enforcement. We debated those facts in this house. I remember my honourable colleague and I having an exchange during the debate of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and it was only after... Police told us that they needed this special power to ensure that they could restore public safety. We continue to listen very carefully to the advice that we're getting uh, from our police services who say that the Emergencies Act is instrumental in having addressed the blockades at ports of entry and continues to be instrumental in preventing them.
0: Here's the problem. He's been contradicted multiple times. Both the RCMP and Ottawa's interim police chief, Steve Bell, told the parliamentary committee that they did not ask the government to invoke the Emergencies Act. And this week, even the public safety minister, Bill Blair, and deputy prime minister, Christopher Freeland, said they never heard those requests either.
2: I do not believe that wouldn't have been an appropriate thing for law enforcement to ask, and they did not ask.
0: So did the minister willfully mislead parliament, and should he resign, or is this conservatives trying to deflect from some of their support of the truckers. Lots to dig into here and the Scrum is here to do just that. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa bureau chief is here. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star and our special guest this round is Conservative MP and the emergency preparedness critic, Dane Lloyd. Good morning to everybody. Mr. Lloyd, I'm gonna start with you because you've accused uh, the Liberals of political overreach when it comes to the Emergencies Act. But why do you think Do you think Minister Mendicino misled Parliament, and should he resign?
5: Absolutely, I think the Minister misled Parliament. Uh, He's been saying for months that it was the police that recommended that the government use the Emergencies Act. And even after the police clarified that they did not recommend to the government that they use the Emergency Act, the Minister doubled down. On May 19th at Public Safety Committee, I read his statements back to him, and I said, do you stand by these statements, Minister? And he said, I do. Uh, but the evidence is showing that police did not recommend that the government invoke the Emergencies Act. And I think that's a clear case, case of misleading Parliament.
0: But, but just before I get to the others, do you think his, he's now saying, look, they, we knew they needed help. They don't, it's not their job to ask us to do it, but they were clearly desperate. They said it helped and it's our job to do it. So you're, quote, just misunderstanding me and avoiding your own support of the truckers. What do you say to that?
5: Well, you know, the minister, the deputy ministers is uh, going out saying that the minister was misunderstood. But uh, the Minister of Public Safety certainly had many, many opportunities to provide, provide clarity to his statements. I think we wouldn't be here today asking for his resignation if he had provided that clarity early on. But the minister has, has still not clarified his remarks. So he's just using his talking points to try to get out of this trap.
0: We did ask Minister Mendocino to join us on the program today. He declined. But, Steph, let me get to you. Uh, the the committee is trying to investigate what's the threshold here. Um, M- Minister Mendicino seems to say the threshold was the advice of police. Police deny that. Uh, Bill Blair gets there. Suddenly he has no notes on his uh, to describe. Christopher Freeland, no notes. Uh, what do you make of the government's um, defense of this reach the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act and what it says right now?
4: This is a government, Evan, that time and time again likes to talk about following the science, following the evidence. And in this particular instance, they're not showing us any of that evidence. And that's highly concerning for the way democracy functions in this country. I mean, you know, full marks to the opposition, right, for doing their job of trying to hold the government to account for these these very questions, trying to pick apart the facts, trying to get these answers. And at this point, the political spin coming out of the liberals, it seems to me, leaves the government no choice. Either they're going to lift cabinet confidence and start showing their work and explaining to Canadians exactly how they justify the use of this act, or we're left wondering if it really was nothing more than, you know, some political overreach designed to somehow, I don't even know what, designed to what? I mean, save their skins, you know, protect the people of Ottawa, absolutely, stop business losses, sure. But it was a dramatic use of a historic piece of legislation, and if they can't justify it beyond just saying, well, you know, we had a conversation one time, that's highly concerning. Uh,
0: Mr. Lloyd, Christian Freeland says she didn't have notes. Uh, she wouldn't show notes, uh, and same with Bill Blair said he didn't take notes. Maybe their staff did. Will the committee be able to get at these notes so you can fi- maybe find out what advice they actually got, some kind of transparency here?
5: Well, we're certainly going to fight as hard as we can to get those notes, but it's up to the government to, uh, you know, waive cabinet confidence and waive solicitor-client privilege. Uh, I am pleased to see that Justice Rouleau and his... Uh, notice to the government on June 1st, indicated that he wants access to those documents. Mm. The government keeps saying it's gonna fully cooperate, but they have yet to formally commit to handing over those documents. And I think as Stephanie was saying, you know, it's starting to cause more questions about uh, whether or not, you know, what evidence was the government using to justify the use of the Emergencies Act. And the longer that they hold out on these documents, uh, I think the less credibility they have.
0: Just real quick, Joyce and Steph, Joyce, look, whether or not the act was needed or not which is I understand that's what Marco Mendocino wants to focus on it was useful it was helpful but the committee's trying to get at the evidence why did you do it at to what point what do you think the key question that from a
6: transparency point of view that he needs to answer right now well they need to answer all the questions they need to, to, to be, I, I and I agree with, with the conservatives, just be transparent. What we want to know and what this this whole committee was supposed to do is get to the bottom. How did we get to this? And what conversations did he actually have with the police? Could he have inferred by his conversations with the police that they were saying we don't have we don't have the tools? Look, I'm a taxpayer and I'm looking at this wondering how could this have happened in this country? And how did we let it go right. this far? And now why are these people bickering and trying to score political points? On the one hand, you've got the Liberals trying to cover their uh, their possible, their mistakes or their inactions, the police's inertia. This was just one big, huge mistake. And now we are not even a centimeter ahead or even a little bit more enlightened as to what happened and how did this happen. And can we please find out,
0: Steph? The Liberals like to say that they're into evidence-based policymaking. Are, are they now doing um, policy-based evidence making? Like I'm, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to figure this out because. <laughs> it, 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 you know what? Why is this significant, and what do they have to do now to justify this?
4: Well, I think that's the nugget of the question. And, and what do they have to do to justify it? I've said it already. I'll say it again: full 100% transparency. As yep. the expression goes, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Shed the light. Explain what, why you did, what you did. Because now we're left wondering. I think, as a nation. Okay, so is the inference here that you didn't actually need the act, that it was a mistake to implement it in the first place? What did you see as the government, the people who were charged with sort of making the if this, then that argument, what did you see was going to happen without the use of the act? And at the end of the day, What happens next? I mean, I understand I hear the opposition conservatives calling for Marco Mendicino to resign, but where's the ultimate accountability here? Let's say that we get through this parliamentary committee and maybe it gets nowhere and there's no real answers. It's partisan mudslinging. And then we get to Justice Rouleau, and he has a formal inquiry, and he concludes at the end of the day, he'll make some conclusions here, there, either way, about whether this act was needed, whether the use of of force or power was justified, and then what? Where does the buck stop? Is there a world in which this liberal government is going to stand up and say, you know what? We were acting on the best available evidence, intelligence, advice, conversations at the time. But you know what? Maybe we just didn't need it, but we wanted to do what's best. That doesn't work in politics anymore.
0: Okay. uh, I got to leave it there. We'll see where this process goes. Dane Lloyd, first of all, I really appreciate you joining us as a special guest on this subject. Of course, Joyce and Steph are going to stick around as part of the Scrum because coming up next, old answers to new inflation problems. Why are the Liberals pitching their old budget as a new solution to new inflation issues? Is it enough, or do they need something more to help consumers? BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back. Runaway inflation and a risk of a recession. Look, we all know inflation is at a 30-year high. We feel it at the gas pumps. Gas is at more than two bucks a litre in many parts of the country. About a quarter of surveyed Canadians, get this, say they're eating less because of rising costs of food. The Bank of Canada is expected to continue raising interest rates. Meanwhile, south of the border, the US Federal Reserve has made its greatest interest rate hike in nearly 30 years. That prompted the finance minister, Krista Freeland, to pitch what she called her new affordability plan. The problem is there was literally nothing new in it at all. So, do they need a new plan or will money from the last budget, which is what the plan is, be enough for the new problems? Let's find out. The Scrum is here to answer that. Joyce Napier is the CTV Ottawa bureau chief. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. She's back, and our special guest this round is BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang. All right, uh, Amanda, welcome to the uh, Scrum. Uh, There's a policy element here and there's a political element. From a policy point of view, the measures that the minister announced, uh, whether it's childcare or the $500 to seniors or some, some key boosts that are actually indexed to inflation, Is that enough to fight the inflation crisis now?
7: Yeah, I mean, I'll leave the the political sleight of hand to others here, but on the policy front, what was actually most disappointing about this, Evan, is that it gets so close to what would have been so good. It would be so good if the government said, we have automatic stabilizers, they already exist, so we know who the people are who need the help. They're already in the programs, and we're gonna use those to give them the extra help they need. Even the indexing to inflation lags, sometimes by a year, sometimes by three months. Either way, not enough. I thought they were going to say, if you're on OAS or you're getting the child benefit or workers benefit, we're actually going to help you right now and it's going to be indexed to inflation and it's going to help you. And that's not inflationary, by the way. It's just making people whole. That didn't happen. What happened was what you already knew you were getting yesterday, you're still getting. So if you felt bad and insecure and like life was unaffordable yesterday, you feel the same today. In other words, nothing has changed.
0: Right. And, and, and Steph, uh, we'll get to the political point of view because the ideas weren't new. Yes, the money that will flow will finally be new to the people who, who will receive it. But... Uh, the minister had raised expectations that there's going to be a new af- affordability plan because of the new crisis with, with inflation, but there's nothing new. So what do you make of the, the political and the policy side?
4: You know, it was remarkable, I Evan. There was a line in the minister's speech where she talked about um, recognizing, because she comes from a small town in Alberta, about how folks who have to, you know, she juxtaposed her life in Toronto, how she doesn't live with, she doesn't have a car, and she takes the subway everywhere, but she recognizes that there are people, you know, in other places where they have to drive long distances, fill their vehicles up with gas, they, you know, they're, they're feeling the pinch at the grocery store, and then she proceeded to do absolutely nothing about it. And it was remarkable. And if I can just pick up on the daycare thing for a minute, and I admit, you know, I have a horse in this game. I have a young child in the daycare system. But it's a bit of a joke to talk about how, you know, daycare fees are going to go down, you know, over the course of the year. But you know what the problem is? Daycares can't subsequently raise those fees to pay their staff more to help cover the rising cost of living for the people who work at the daycare. So it's a cyclical problem. And, you know, it's like they're addressing targeted things without acknowledging the impact on other things in that same system.
0: All right, uh, Steph. By the way, I love when we talk about our kids as having a horse in the game because at yeah. some point as you, we're just trying to herd them. Uh, Joyce, w- what do you make of uh, what do you make of the plan? New plan? No, we know it's an old plan. But is as as Amanda said, is it enough firepower in it anyway?
6: Well, actually, I, I, I don't think so. Right? I mean, the, they they could have gotten creative. They are the ones who, you know, sort of were, were whispering to, to, to journalists this big uh, big speech coming up, a big speech coming up. Maybe they should have underplayed it and not overplayed it before because then the expectation was such that we thought, oh, there's going to be some new tools uh, that the minister will, you know, will offer up. And and there were no new tools, which is interesting. So can they get creative? Could they have listened to the opposition uh and said, okay, can we come up with something that that will make right. people whole, not contribute to inflation, but maybe lower taxes for a while. The government is raking a lot of money in. They're getting a lot of money. Inflation means the government fills its coffers. High cost of fuel, the government, you know, right. rakes it in. So in in all this plenty for the government, is there a part where they could give back to consumers or not take away from taxpayers, lower taxes for a while. Provinces have done that on fuel. Uh, Alberta has done that. Um, uh, Ontario has done that. Can the federal government get a little bit more creative? And maybe, hey, why not, a little more daring? Uh, Amanda, the the opposition
0: is pitching that. They said, look, these are structural issues that are long-term, but what about now? What about the GST on gas or or, or the NDP is pitching uh, rebates? What's your take on that?
7: Well, my take is that actually, back to the first point, which is they were, they're so close to the right idea, which is if you and I have talked about lowering the, the inflationary tax on gas, just the portion of gas tax that's inflationary seems to me like an obvious thing to do. The trouble with that, and Joyce will, will agree, is it, 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 everybody benefits. You, we will all, all benefit, and we don't need to. Right now, there's pain to be shared, and the finance minister was good on that point. This is not going to be easy. It's going to last a while. We should all buckle up. So we will pay more for gas and maybe we should take the subway more right now if we can. We're not at the moment because we saved so much during pandemic that if you're slightly wealthy, you got wealthier. I'll go back to what this government could do, and they could do it right now. You know who the vulnerable people are. They're on the workers' benefit already. Give them more. Not You don't have to give them a windfall, but give them a little more. We learned that lesson during pandemic. If you target the aid, it does a great deal of good, and it's not inflationary in any way. A broader assistance, like re- reducing taxes, is inflationary, because we all get that money.
0: Uh, Steph, uh you got conservatives are hammering them over, you know, gas tax, uh, the NDP, are even the NDP are saying you're, you're not doing enough. Um, is this the government saying we're just going to wait? We're going to have inflation numbers coming out, new inflation numbers actually, I think, late this week. Uh, so we'll have new numbers. Uh, what do you think their strategy is? Just hold the budget or do they have to give some short term uh, solutions here?
4: Uh, you know, it's, it's ride the wave, right? Or like the crypto bros say, buy the dip or whatever it is, right. you know, this new lingo, right? Try to figure out a way to deflect political pressure on this. I mean, another thing remarkable, right, about Christopher Freeland's speech is that, th- th- you know, the government did create some of this inflation, not all of it by any means. It's a global problem, absolutely, but no acknowledgement of that, right? No Reflection, no thoughtfulness. And, you know, Amanda picks up on a really great point about the pandemic. The pandemic showed that the government has the ability to be nimble, to be creative, to move quickly, to respond immediately to problems. And so why not deploy all those strengths now that you learned during the pandemic, pick up on those lessons and use them to help people in a much more targeted way? What the government does going forward, I mean, it's going to be a hard summer for a lot of people. They're going to come back in the fall. There's going to be a new leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. If that's Pierre Polyev, it's going to become an even bigger problem for Christopher and the Trudeau Liberals because he will not let up on this by any stretch of the imagination.
0: And just speaking of by the dip, uh, the crypto crash has not helped his pitch for crypto because there is, I don't know what the dip is there, but it's going lower. But the inflation crisis is going to eat at this government over the summer and uh, I guess the question is can their
6: old plan last? No, it can't. They've got to do something. We know that these prices may go up, we know that inflation numbers will will come back and bite us in the nose. We also know that the Bank of Canada will increase its rate. Right, yeah. So we know that this is coming. So why doesn't the government learn to get ahead of something? How about you try this, just for fun, get ahead of it?
0: Okay, I gotta leave it there. Because uh, we're always behind time here. Uh, Amanda Lang, Joyce Napier and Stephanie Lev, It's great to have the three of you on the program. And that is question period for this week. Also, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Hope you have a great day. I'll see you back on Monday night, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel's Power Play, and we will be back here in seven short days. Hug your loved ones. It's a privilege, and happy anniversary to my wife.